Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner. Welcome to this week's macro call from Washington, D.C. We're going to talk about the major issues developing in Washington, Europe, and Latin America. Leading the discussion today will be Chris Serwinski, our lead international analyst. Along with Chris will be our head of research, John East, our LATAM analyst, Brian Dean, Bart Oosterveld, our emerging market analyst. I'd like to turn it over to Chris to lead today's call. Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining, including the panelists. We continue to move through the motions in D.C. of reconciliation. The administration is trying to confirm its nominees through the Senate. And, you know, there, there are beginning talks about infrastructure and, and what would be the starting point for that bill. Obviously, we'll touch on those. Today, we're going to really focus on some of the developments in Brazil over the weekend and, and this week and the market reaction to them with Bolsonaro potentially moving towards a more populist approach, potentially putting in jeopardy some of these market-based reforms that, um, that, that everyone's cheering for. So to start, though, John, what has changed between last week and this week with regards to this $1.9 trillion stimulus package in Congress? Well, the Congress is moving very quickly. Today and tomorrow, the Rules Committee and the House are going to be trying to pass the House version of the legislation. They're leaving provisions that may not survive in the final bill in because they're punting those questions over to the Senate where they belong properly. Yesterday in the Senate, Democrats and Republicans made their respective pitches to the Senate parliamentarian on a number of provisions, but most notably the minimum wage. We could get a rule today on whether that meets reconciliation rules, but the Senate is going to try to turn around next week as soon as it gets the House package and work its will. It will probably take about a legislative week that then, when the Senate is done, it will return the legislation to the House for passage and hopefully and probably meet the mid-March deadline. So with the minimum wage component, parliamentarian could obviously strip it out. If that happens, then do Democrats go back to the drawing board at all, like to try to find some other provision to include that obviously doesn't go to the same effect of federally mandating $15, but do they go back and try to add other provisions to it, or they just accept that the parliamentarian has ruled that provision is ineligible? Well, they will probably accept her ruling on that. There has been talk about trying to overrule her. I don't think there are enough votes there. There are some other issues with what is usually considered discretionary spending. There's about $400, $450 billion in that. Yesterday afternoon, there was a provisional analysis by the Congressional Budget Office that suggests that the House bill is over $1.9 trillion as currently constituted, but there was no estimate on how much over. And therefore, that does not meet the reconciliation instructions. And so if you take out something like the minimum wage, then the bill probably falls back in the $1.9 trillion territory. The danger there, though, if I, I've seen people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that they will not support a, you know, a Democratic bill that does not have that minimum wage component to it. Well, then on her back and the back of other lawmakers who think like her, the whole enterprise will fail because Democrats can't lose more than five House votes. Yeah, so she actually does have some sway in this. Yeah. All right, well, moving out of D.C. and right before we get to Brazil, Bart, I'd love to give you a minute to talk about the heat map and what you're seeing from global caseloads and vaccination efforts. 
Good news on the pandemic as a whole continues, and the growth rate continues to decline steadily. It's now at 5%, which is the lowest it's been since the very start of the pandemic. We have 75 countries that we rank in this heat map. Of those, 32 have now started a vaccination campaign. That number keeps going up every week. And there's some countries that are as far along, if not further, than UK, Europe, certainly in in, in the US. So Serbia stands out as vaccinated uh, close to 26% of its population already. Bahrain and Chile, Similarly, have, have very strong vaccination efforts uh, well above the global average. I highlighted Malaysia, Chris. For one, it hasn't started a vaccination campaign and hasn't meaningfully procured any of the major vaccines available in the market. So that, that's one of the reasons it stands to underperform. It is unclear to me how the IMF growth forecast is going to bear out this year because the IMF is projecting 8% growth for Malaysia for a country that, that is still, you know, has its border closed and is under a variety of other restrictions. It's unclear to me how it's going to snap back to really rapid growth like that this year. So those were, would be my comments on the heat I appreciate that. I move over here to Brian Dean, our, our Latin America analyst. Brian, Brazil is in focus. Developments there have investors very worried. And in fact, there are developments that will impact the future reform agenda and, and whether or not, you know, Brazilian assets are safe, right? So there's many different aspects to this, and I want to touch on all of them. But let's first start with, you know, what precipitated some of this market concern over the weekend with Bolsonaro and Petrobras? Well, it started with rapid and multiple increases in the price of diesel fuel and the threat of a trucker strike. Trucker strikes have, you know, historically paralyzed governments in Brazil and caused failure of, 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 of numerous Brazilian governments. Uh, Bolsonaro did not want to have to face that pressure, given all, given all of the other crises he's facing, and uh, his solution was to sack the CEO of Petrobras, Roberto Castelo Branco, who is a very highly respected an individual, a guy that's a University of Chicago trained economist, along with uh, economy minister Gengis, and a guy who conveyed, a, who, who projected a very favorable in his image to mark markets and the energy sector in his guidance of the company. He's been replaced by an army general. The Brazilian military is known for its resource nationalism, and this guy doesn't appear to be an exception. So the change was motivated by political and a political imperative on the part of Bolsonaro, and uh, projected a signal to the markets that people's worst fears about a turn toward populist governance was coming on on full display. So with that, you know. Resource nationalism is one thing. Petrobras has been moving forward with divestment of several parts of its business. Does that mean that that, that momentum is now stopped or is still his goal to continue with those divestments? The statements that have been uh, released since uh, last weekend indicate that the new uh, the new leadership of Petrobras will continue with the divestiture of the refinery unit, which is the the major part of the divestiture. That uh, and along with a couple of other factors allowed Petrobras and Ibo Vespa Exchange to improve a little bit after their dramatic fall uh, after the weekend's uh, sacking of this Petrobras CEO. Yeah, what about Electrobras? Because that's, it, it, at least to my understanding, the government is continuing to signal privatization. I think that's probably part of just a signaling campaign to the market that, yes, we're serious about this. Exactly. Electrobras is the major component of the privatization initiatives underway in the Bolsonaro administration. 
it had been seen as dead as recently as a month ago. You know, I think what has happened with Electrobras is that in order to compensate for the perception uh, created by the Petrobras situation at the insistence of the economy minister Gedges, the Electrobras privatization is back and it's back on a, on, a, on a fast track. And I think it goes well beyond signaling the legislation that the uh, government submitted to the Congress on privatization is done through a, it's called a provisional measure, which is a uh, fast-track, expedited method of passing legislation. It allows for the rulemaking and the preparations for the law to begin immediately. You know, obviously, Congress has to vote on it eventually in order to allow the capitalization to take place. But uh, this provision is pretty much uh, signals that there's a very good chance that by December of 2021, Electrobras is going to be well on the path toward privatization, of course, with the golden share for the government that allows it to veto or control certain board decisions. So outside of that, then, you know, those are two very, very important issues to the privatization agenda. We've spent a lot of time talking about emergency payments that the Bolsonaro administration has given to a really broad population, but a lot of, you know, unbanked population as well. Is there a prospect for continued payments outside of the spending cap utilizing this emergency spending constitutional amendment, PEC? Can you update us on that vote and in how you see that happening? First of all, it's important to define what those emergency spending constitutional measures are. These are a package of fiscal tools that are triggered when government compulsory spending, mandatory spending, exceeds 94% of the total budget, is already the case in Brazil. And it allows for what would be the U.S. equivalent of a budget sequestration to take place. It enables the, the executive branch to make across-the-board reductions, even in compulsory programs like education and health, in order to compensate for uh, spending that would otherwise exceed the spending cap. This is something that the economy minister is insisting upon and is adamant about if the president is going to go ahead with an extension of emergency payments. And that goes without saying. It's, an, it's a political imperative for Bolsonaro to extend these emergency payments. He's watching his numbers, his approval numbers drop precipitously because of the expiration of those payments and uh, needs to get those back on the table in order to uh, be competitive in next year's presidential elections. Those votes are coming up next week. They were to be held this week. You get the feeling that they're still counting votes to make sure they pass because without sequestration mechanisms in place, it's almost a certainty that they will exceed the spending caps and that sends a very negative message. So those votes are coming up. They're very, very close. My feeling is that they're going to pass and it's going to be a victory for Gedges. And that's along with Electrobras is going to, you know, I think, reconstitute the momentum toward the reform agenda. So I, I think that the fear that was put into the heart of the market uh, over last weekend because of Petrobras, there's been a very deliberate effort on the part of uh, Bolsonaro administration to shore up their momentum on reform and privatization, and, and they've largely succeeded in sending that message. I'll say that when the Electrobras legislation was submitted in the aftermath of the Petrobras situation, it was Economy Minister Gedges and President Bolsonaro that walked from Planalto to the Congress to deliver the legislation, and that was by you know, a symbolic gesture. So it's, you know, it's symbolic that they both took it to the legislature, but it's also symbolic just seeing Gedges and Bolsonaro together, knowing that the relationship's good and that Gedges should be, there should be continued involvement on his part with this government. 
You know, I was initially very concerned that the Petrobras situation would precipitate his departure. It does not look like it's going to be the case. I think that the gestures that were made in the aftermath of Petrobras have sent that signal. I've talked to numerous people down in Brazil who are close to the situation. But, you know, the feeling is that Gedji's in this thing for the long run. I don't think he's going to leave anytime in the foreseeable future. Yeah. And, and so then, Bart, because we talk internally about how Brazil is constantly euphoria or, you know, gloom and despair, right? Mm-hmm. Investors are very hot or very cold on it. I think this these events over the weekend were an example of that, right? Brazilian assets reacted very quickly to what they perceived to be very negative news. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. I think with Brazil, it's important to have a medium and a long-term view because in the end, this is a $2 trillion economy the size of France or Italy. Things just don't move as dramatically as the market sometimes prices them. So that, that's something to keep in mind. I wanted to pick up on the last thing Brian was talking about is that my impression is also, also from talking to local market participants, uh, that Gedji's, he has a long-term program. You know, this is the, the last job he will ever have before retiring. He has a vision of what he wants to achieve with this economy. And I think he can look past the drama of certain moments like the, like the moments we saw this weekend. It is important to remember that if the economy and the government finances are at a very precarious moment. And so for that reason alone, I think Getty's will want to continue his work. In my mind, there is a risk of stagflation in, in the Brazilian economy that's very present. You know, unemployment is high. Inflation is running high. Growth is projected to be low. Potential growth is, is declining. And government finances are very stretched. Debt, debt is quite high and rising. The, the sustainability and the affordability of Brazil's sovereign debt at 90 or 100 percent of GDP, that remains to be seen. The other angle to this, John Turek, where is the Brazilian Central Bank right now? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I mean, I think that probably the events this week and the heightened volatility, you know, around Brazilian assets, the currency and fixed income, you know, only adds pressure to, you know, for the BCB to kick off their hiking cycle in a pretty aggressive way, probably come March. And this is, you know, only two or three months removed from when, you know, the BCB's policy statement had forward guidance that said they had no intention of hiking rates. And, you know, now we could be set off for a pretty aggressive hiking cycle in 2021. And I think this kind of speaks to what Bart's point, you know, the fragility of the situation, especially on the fiscal front, is that, you know, the market's going to look for the BCB to kind of be a counterpunch. And that will only add pressure this year for them to continue to deliver. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.